I'll stall. It's actually about time for the meeting to be over. We've been here almost an hour, so thank you for coming. I have really enjoyed myself. <laughs> My name is Judy, and I am a grateful member of the Al-Anon family groups. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I was trying to think, I wish I were a mathematician. I would have added up all the recovery in the room when people were standing up. Um, All the people who did all the jobs, I was thinking of our fourth concept, participation is the key to harmony. It feels real harmonious in Kentucky, and your harmony with the border states. uh, It just feels like home to me, so thank you. Uh, Sue has been a great hostess. Uh, We've been corresponding for about a year. Uh, She brought me the little box, uh, the gift box, and she said, it's collapsible. You are the first people who have ever thought of a collapsible gift to put in a suitcase. (laughs) That's great. Um, I had the banana at lunchtime. Um, I can't think of all the people to thank. I enjoyed hearing Linda last night, Bernadette in the afternoon, Bill... Uh, Jesse, Anna touched my heart, Sam touched my soul. Uh, I don't know who all to thank, but thank you everybody for inviting me and having me here. I am a member of the uh, Love and Laughter Al-Anon Family Group Thursday night in Reno. Uh, That's my home group. Uh, We had a meeting Thursday night before I got up early Friday and left. And if I weren't on Pacific time, I'd already be in bed. So you're lucky with the three-hour time difference. Uh, when I came to Al-Anon, I was in bed by this time. Today I'm not. <sighs> not too long ago, I returned from Minnesota. That's where I was born and raised. My round O's might slip out a little bit. And uh, I was laughing to myself looking at the program here. When I came to Al-Anon, I always looked at it, and if a speaker was from far away, I thought they must be really good. (laughs) How wrong I have been about so many things. I am, I think, from the furthest away. When I looked at the map uh, flying here, I thought, my gosh, I'm going almost all the way across the United States. And here I am at home, just just like I was home when I came to Al-Anon. I'm just an ordinary person living an extraordinary life. That is all that I can tell you about me. I am blessed to be here. And this spring, I was with my mother in Minnesota. She had uh, shoulder replacement surgery. I spent six days with her in the hospital. Then I went home to spend more days with her to help her recover. And I was exhausted, but I did all the things that I would want to do if I were my mother and had shoulder replacement surgery. And it wasn't easy because it was the year of no snow in Minnesota, and believe it or not, the septic tank froze up. Not only was I a trusted servant, but I was runner of the commode. And uh, that is service, let me tell you. I hate smells like that. I'll just say that, but uh, I did it for my mother. And when I got home that night, it was late. I hopped into bed. I opened a little meditation book, the first one that was on the stack of my bed. And the question that came to me was this. How often do we miss opportunities to be the face of God to family, to friends, and even strangers? 
What is it like to show the face of God? Right there I stopped. I shut that book. I laid it on my chest. I closed my eyes and turned out the light because thanks to you, I haven't missed too many opportunities to try to be the face of God since I've come here. And I know what the face of God looks like. It looks like the circle of hope. It looks like the welcome you gave me when I came in long ago. It looks like love. It looks like acceptance. And so I was grateful that night. I just shut off the light and I thought, you know, thank God I have found out. And how have I found out? I think through our three legacies and our book says recovery through acceptance of the steps. It doesn't say the steps plain. It says acceptance of the steps. And unity through acceptance of the traditions. And service through acceptance of the concepts. I've had to accept a lot. In fact, since I've been here, I was feeling a little jealous of the couples that come in, the Al-Anon member and the AA spouse. Because, you see, I always sat out there, and that was my hope. That one day there would be the two of us coming together. We would be Mr. and Mrs. Program. And we would be waltzing around and we would be dancing tonight with our dancing shoes on. And it was a lot of years before I could even look in at the dance because, you see, I was by myself. And so I had to trust the miracles of other members. And I had to accept that. So let me tell you about my wonderful life, and I was thinking tonight, I'm here to tell you about the progression of my recovery. I like that. I used to sit and listen to speakers, and they said, well, I came to Al-Anon, and here I am. And I always thought, well, what's in between? How did they do it? What happened? And so I've tried to weave in what happened when I was first new, and then what transpired, and where I am today. And that's the progression of my recovery. Uh, I should have stood up for uh, 26 years, but I didn't. I came in November 16, 1981, and I was married to a person who drank a lot. I didn't want to call him an alcoholic. But his drinking made me miserable. And actually, he was my second husband. I really don't even have time to tell you about the first one. (laughs) I can tell you this about him, and it's kind of sad. I married him. I put him through medical school. I never really liked him. And if I had a choice between a practicing physician, at least that one, and the practicing alcoholic, I would take the practicing alcoholic any day. And... (laughs) I don't know why that is, because when I met the alcoholic in my life, he was the man for me, and I truly loved that man. He was brown-eyed, handsome, sturdy shoulders. He drove a little red CJ5 Jeep. Everyone loved him, and when I loved him, I didn't want anybody else to love him anymore. (laughs) But they kept on loving him, and that was a problem for me. I only went to one meeting in 1981. I didn't like that meeting. 
I read about it in the paper. I'm glad that Public Outreach had published the meeting list because I looked at that meeting list once a month. It was in the bottom left corner of like the neighbors section. All the meetings were there and it said, are you concerned about someone's drinking? And I said to myself, yes, I am. What should I do about it? Well, I should read this. So every month I read it and I thought, yes, I'm still concerned. Uh, I was always slow to act, thinking it over and very slow to make decisions. So when I did go that November 16th, 1981, I called the answering service. The woman said, meet me at my house, and we'll go to the meeting. So I drove to her house, parked my car, I came out, my car was gone. I blamed the alcoholic, you know, in 30 seconds. He was nowhere around, but actually I had left it in neutral. I was so nervous, and my car had rolled completely across the street and was in someone else's yard. Our cars were used to things like that, so I just claimed it, and we went to the meeting. I can tell you I didn't like the meeting. It was in the basement of St. Ludmilla's Church, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. The stairs was skinny. It was dark. We sat in a table by an oven. As I remember it, there was a light bulb hanging from a string, and... People were sniveling and whining, and they looked old. And in the other room, there was a lot of light and a lot of laughter, and you know who they were. (laughs) That was very annoying to me. Jeannie gave me a One Day at a Time book, the ODAT book that night. She wrote in it, we all love you, say the serenity prayer, Jeannie, and she put the date. That's the only reason I know. I got out of there as fast as I could. I thought, my life is not that bad. (laughs) It was pitiful, as my friend says. Well, I thought I'd go out and fix it myself, so four years later... This is how I looked when I came back in April of 1985. I want to describe just a few things that are characteristic of the family member affected by the disease of alcoholism, and that was me. I was full of fear and anxiety. I was afraid of fire. We had a wood stove down in our basement, and I was always afraid my cats would burn up when I left home. So I would put them in the laundry room, put the rug up, and make sure that smoke wouldn't be able to get in the laundry room. For a while, I was leaving the basement window open so they could come in and out, but then one of the cats brought in a dead rabbit, and that didn't go over very well, and then one day I found it screwed shut with 12 screws. So we didn't have agreement on leaving the basement windows open. I twitched when the phone rang. I... uh, I was afraid of car wrecks, and that was justifiable because our cars had been in several. Um, We have learned here not to talk about the alcoholics, so it's a mystery how the cars got in the wreck, but we all say no more. (laughs) I was obsessed with two things, time and money, his time and our money. Where was the time going? Where was he going? Who were those friends that I referred to Cheeringly as lowlifes. <laughs> I just couldn't believe he could spend so much time with them. In fact, I wondered about them, if there was something wrong with them. And he was married to me. I was resentful. 
I was angry. I was so mad about all the things that were broken at our house. I was mad about the fire that might happen from the burning barrel. The fire would overflow and it burned up my raspberries one day. We lived in the country and I liked those raspberries and and they were fried. And uh, a tie would flip off and crystal things would fall off of the bedroom dresser. And I was mad about that. I was mad about everything. And uh, we ate dinner in bed. That was our typical thing. Um, seemed the thing to do. He would come home, fix his plate, and hop into bed and watch TV. And I wanted to be with him. You know, I liked him, so I hopped into bed too. And then he was soon sleeping, and there I was, about 7.30. And, you know, I remember hearing the robins outside, and, and it's light, and I think, what am I doing here? I know what he's doing. He's sleeping. And uh, my husband kept a pistol in the bottom dresser drawer. I don't really know why I never ask, but I would lie there and start thinking, you know, I ought to get that pistol out. And I just ought to fire a few rounds in the air and just kind of get his attention. And when I went back to Alnon in 1985, I was thinking about making a direct hit. <laughs> and that's the truth. I was kind of scared that I might just get that thing out. You know, I just wanted him to pay attention to me. <laughs> and the more I talked about it, the more he didn't. And in retrospect, I don't blame him. I mean, who likes to have your friends called lowlifes? Who likes to get the interrogation when you come in the door? I wasn't nice. And so these are some of the characteristics that I exhibited. By 1985, I was sitting down on a Friday night, probably in the basement. We burned wood. I had the wood stove going. No one was home but me. I had complained about not getting wood up early enough. If you ever gather wood, you know it has to dry. Otherwise, it could be green and you could have a chimney fire. So I used to rant and rave and nag about the wood because I was worried about money and it was cheaper to burn wood than pay the oil. And the lowlifes had gotten sick of me. And one fall day, they all converged on our place they went out to the woods. They cut down everything that looked like burnable wood. They opened the basement window. They did not bother to stack or load or bring it in. They opened the window and they filled the room <laughs> to the ceiling. Over the indoor-outdoor carpet, they said it won't hurt. You know, it's indoor-outdoor carpeting. And so I had enough room that I was in that chair I didn't have to get out of my chair. I could simply reach over, <laughs> get a chunk of wood, open it with the other door, put in the wood, shut it, and cry, and get out my book. And I move my chair closer to the stove, and under the chair were a couple dead birds brought in by my cats. And I thought to myself, you know, life's got to be better than this. <laughs> So when I went back in 1985, the people were younger, nicer, more cheerful, welcoming, and it didn't seem like the basement was so dark and dingy. Now, I can tell you that I didn't like being there. I didn't tell my husband I was going to Al-Anon. I was afraid to tell him. 
And I talked to my boss where I worked because I came clean and I said, I need to go to Al-Anon, and I told him what it was. And that's probably the first time I told the truth about what was happening. And he arranged my schedule so that I could go to a meeting at noon and make it back in time to get back to work. Now, when I went there, there were three things. Identification. That little blue pamphlet. Well, it's not even a pamphlet. It's just a little flyer. Are you troubled about someone's drinking? Someone gave that to me. And the first three questions, do you worry about how much someone else drinks? Yes. Do you have money problems? Yes. Do you tell lies to cover up for someone else's drinking? Yes. Already I knew I was a worried, broke liar. (laughs) You know, my self-esteem was already low enough. Of these 20 questions, I answered yes to 18 of these. The only two that I didn't say yes to, uh, one was, have you thought of calling the police? I didn't have to. They dropped by. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one was, do you ever threaten to hurt yourself? And No, but I did want to be dead. You know, I didn't have the courage to kill myself, but I wish someone else would. And I lived on Highway 30, and all the grain trucks would go back and forth. And I would think about just driving a little to the left, and that grain truck full of grain could just flatten me, and I'd be oatmeal. But uh, that was it. But identification. So although I did not like Al-Anon, all I ever saw were the Kleenex in my crotch. I never looked up. Um, I was always crying. It's true. I, people say they remember somebody from their first meeting. I remember no one. But if I were a priest, I would recognize your voice in a confessional. I'm quite sure. I knew people by their voices, and uh, I listened. And the literature that was on the table, that's what I took. That's what I took, and I read it. And... The education that is in our CAL, our conference-approved literature, all of the pamphlets, that's what taught me about alcoholism, the family disease, because I wasn't talking to anyone. I was in the door, get the information out the door. Don't touch me. I grew up in sort of a Norwegian-German home, which is kind of a curse because they're both a little tense. And... uh, You know, I just, I didn't go for that hugging. I I really didn't go for the praying either. But the pamphlets I like because it showed me a plan of action. And uh, several of my favorite ones, uh, besides the 20 questions, I like the merry-go-round named Denial because that talked about the three stages of alcoholism as a family disease. And I realized that we were in stage three, act three. I mean, the curtain is about to come down. Now, I knew something was wrong. But there we were in Act 3. It was serious. And the guide for the family taught me about the alcoholic coming home and then raising my anger and my anxiety. And then I would fall for it and react. And then he would leave again. And so I'm going, oh. You know, and people said about detachment. You know, if somebody says something a little ugly to you, just smile and say, I'm glad to see you're home. Uh, that was interesting to me. I thought, I'm, I'm going to have a plan. So I identified with what was in the literature. 
I got smarter because of what was in it. And then it gave me a plan of action to try something. The pamphlet, So You Love an Alcoholic, I think should be in every newcomer's hand. That pamphlet right away says, the American Medical Association and other societies define alcoholism as a disease. It's not a weakness. It's not a disgrace. And I had to learn that. It says, forget everything you thought about alcoholism and start over with a true education and go to open AA meetings and listen to the alcoholics tell their story. And then it says you have to learn what not to do. I was doing it all. Don't nag, don't threaten, don't check up, don't treat the person like a child, don't make threats you won't carry out. Well, it's hard to stop doing those things when I'd done them forever. So I had to grip the couch. This is a new try. And when he would come home, I would say, instead of my usual, I'm glad to see you home. Dinner's in the fridge. You know, something just neutral. And it was astonishing the difference that began to take place in our house. Now, I couldn't really grasp the steps. I was too anxious. I I couldn't listen that well. But the slogans, yes. I could pick up a few slogans. And Easy Does It was probably my first one. So I think of any program information, those slogans are really powerful because that's about all I could do. Uh, First things first, what would that be? That means don't go looking for him, do the dishes. And so darn it, I started doing the dishes. And I would stay home instead of run on the search. Uh, I stopped reading matchbooks and bar napkins with phone numbers and calling those numbers. I gave up my detective ways. And that is hard. You know, I was a good detective. I just wish we'd have had caller ID when I started. (laughs) Think of the possibilities of that one. Yikes. Phone pictures. But... I tried to stop those things, and that was about my first six months. Now, I heard talk about a sponsor. I didn't really buy it, but there was this woman. She always stood at the door on that Thursday noon meeting, and she was a large woman, tall, long fingernails. And I would try to get past her. She was very well endowed. And I called her endowments hydrangeas to myself. Because when my husband and I were going down Lombard Street in California, the crookedest street in the world, I'm looking out the left side of the car one day at these beautiful hydrangeas, these fluffy, big flowers. And I'm saying, look at those hydrangeas. He's looking out the right side of the car. There's this lovely young woman walking down, and he said, yeah, look at those hydrangeas. (laughs) So we always had a family joke about the hydrangeas. And there was this lady with the hydrangeas. And I swear that when I went to the door, she would simply turn. And I knew she was going to hug me, and I was worried that I would disappear in that crease. (laughs) 
that lady is my sponsor. <laughs> Those hydrangeas are still there. But she called me honey. And she talked to me nice. I've slept on her couch. I've ridden in her car. And I think her slogan was, honey, get in the car. <laughs> I had nowhere else to go. I had no friends. And so early on, I went with her and her other friends. And, and I went wherever. It didn't matter. Drive to Independence, up to Waterloo. Uh, we went out on some service mission, and they laughed and they ate together, and I didn't know how to do that. I didn't have friends. So it was really novel to me to go with several women and laugh and come home and go to bed and feel good. I stopped focusing so much on the alcoholic. And she taught me a lot of things really fast. She said, honey, it takes two to argue. Knock it off. <laughs> oh, and she said, stop asking all those questions. You know, you think being curious and finding things out is an asset. But she said, with this, it's not. It's a defect. She said, stop asking questions. And I asked them, like a mother, uh, what did you have for lunch? Who would you eat with? Things like that. Uh, I mean, the guy's 40. You know, and I'm going, did you have a sandwich? Um, I mean, I was pitiful. And... I was always pointing at him. We would have these arguments, and I'd say, you're the one. You know, my finger was always just sticking out there in his face, and she said, you know, you're the one. You're the one. Quit it. And there's a line in our Odette that says, knowledge when it's meant to you will come with no effort on your part. So stop and just do what you're supposed to be doing, first things first. And when you're supposed to know something, you'll know it. And she said, and lastly, honey, Stop being so harsh with his friends. And so I began to practice. I said, hi, Dave. <laughs> hi, Mike. I think I resented Mike the most. But I tried it, and it began to work. And there's a line in our literature that says, changed attitudes can aid recovery. And the friends... I knew they always came out. My husband was creative and inventive and fun, and so everybody converged on our place on Saturday mornings, and they had these projects, and they worked on them, and uh, I called them the creators and the inventors out there, and they stitched everything up with duct tape when they were injured, and, you know, they had a phone and a TV, and uh, then about 11, they would all leave, and they would go off for lunch, and I would be so angry. And, you know, I got the idea. All I really wanted was somebody to stay home and eat lunch with me. You know, I really wasn't mad where they were going. It's just that I was alone again. And so I started asking Mike and Dave, and, and there was Pug. <laughs> I think he was a real alcoholic because it must have been a bar named Pug and then Buck, you know. And I would invite them for lunch if they were working on a project. And they would all stay. And I'd make brats or sandwiches, and I'd say lunch will be on at noon, and uh, you're welcome to eat. And uh, there was sort of an unspoken, uh, I guess, courtesy to the cook. 
Everybody would come in, no beer, all the beer stayed in the garage. We all ate, lunch was pretty fast, uh, not a lot of conversation, and off they went. You know, and I felt happy. So my attitude changed, and uh, it was all for the better. Now, one day, projects. One day I was still home, I hadn't left for work, and this huge transport truck drives up. And we lived down a hill and up a hilly driveway, and this truck is, you know, backing up. And I look out my usual window where I used to, you know, spy on everyone. And uh, the guy hops out of the cab, and he's got a clipboard, and he says, uh, will you sign here? And I'm looking up at the truck, and on the flatbed, is a uh, World War II, one of those amphibious military personnel characters <laughs> known as the Duck. 39 feet long, I think 13 tons of metal. And he said, uh, will you sign here? I said, oh, it's not ours. <laughs> and he checked the name. He goes, yep, it's yours. It became the project. <laughs> They were restoring this. My husband had gone to Canada fishing, had seen it out in the woods. It was abandoned. He rescued it. He bought it. He had it transported down from northern Canada. And all the guys set about to restore this thing to its pristine condition for the holiday of all alcoholics, which I call St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> They were going to ride it in the parade. <laughs> I hated that duck. I never touched it. I never walked by it. I went around the garage the other way. It represented everything obsessive and alcoholic to me that I could think of. The countdown was on, and you could feel the pressure in the air when it was getting close to St. Patrick's Day. People were taking time off. They were coming out. It had stainless steel, custom-made beer holders installed on it. And you think that's funny. I was just horrified. Remember my sponsor? She said to me about a week before, she said, you know what, Judy? Your husband has put a lot of time and effort and love into that project. I felt it coming. She said, I think when he drives that in the parade, that you should be there. I said to myself, I think I should switch sponsors. <laughs> I was just speechless, and she went, honey, I got off early. I met her at the corner of Merchants National Bank. Cedar Rapids, Iowa actually looks like Paris, France. It's the government buildings are on an island, and it's a lovely setting, and she's going, here they come. In the distance, it was like General Patton coming down the Champs-Élysées. There he was, proud, driving that thing. I could see the keg in the back, <laughs> right over the wall. And when he got right about in line with me, she said, Now, honey, when he gets up here, I want you to smile and wave. 
she gave me the yabu. I got ready. <laughs> I did it. It was a priceless moment for me because he paid attention to me. He couldn't believe I was there, and he drove that duck down the road to the east, and he was looking back at me, and I'm thinking, watch the road. I felt good because for the first time, I wasn't witchy. I actually did smile and I did wave. And that night, there was a meeting, and uh, he wasn't home yet. And I had eaten, and uh, when he came home, uh, I remember he he felt the back of my hair. It was wet. I'd gotten in the shower, and he felt it and said, You're going to a meeting, aren't you? I said, Yep. And he said, "Uh, I'm glad you're going. I know it makes you feel better when you go. And then he looked at me and said, and thanks for coming today. It really meant a lot. And I responded the way you have taught me. I just said, you're welcome. I didn't say anything else. Because, you see, I always said too much. From that time on, attitudes had been changed in our house. And we had a light at the end of our driveway. And after I found out that alcoholism was a disease, I always left the light on at the bottom of the driveway. And I called it the love light. When my husband would go out, I would say, I'll leave the love light on for you. And I used to look and hope that love light would be on for me, but it never was. And then eventually I stopped looking. But not too long after the duck thing, I came up over the hill one night and I looked down in the little cove and there was a little fog and it was this yellow haze. And the love light was on for me. Not much changed in our house, but the love light was always on for either of us when we were gone. And if the bulb was burned out, my spouse was quick to say that he would get it replaced. It wasn't intentional. And uh, that meant a lot to me. I, uh, I thought when my husband went to treatment that it was the beginning of a new life for us. I was hopeful. But it was just three, three weeks after he returned, and we were eating in a restaurant that night, and uh, he ordered his usual drink. I had been to a lot of open AA meetings, and I believed what I had heard there, that it's the first drink. But I also heard an Al-Anon, it's not my business, stay out of it, and I simply went on and ate my meal. But I can tell you from that moment on that our lives begin to go in separate directions. Because to this day, he is not back here yet. And that's been a long while. I continued to go to meetings. I knew that I was powerless over alcohol. I felt like I was getting saner. But I hadn't made any decisions about that God thing. I hardly trusted you. I was learning that. So how could I trust someone or something I didn't even see. So I didn't know about step three. I just sort of let it go. But I was invited to Butte, Montana. And I remember how wonderfully I was treated by people there. And alcoholism to me was very tiring. If people would invite me somewhere or I would go somewhere, it was a chance to rest up, to get a full night's sleep 
not to worry about the phone ringing, and I had a wonderful time there. And I couldn't believe there were so many people. You know, if you're a newcomer, isn't it just amazing when you walk in the room and you see all these people, and they all know what you know, and they're doing all right? It's just miraculous. And that weekend, I knew that I couldn't have made it that far if it hadn't been for the fellowship and the kindness of the people who reached out to me. And when I got back to my room that night, I said to myself, you know what, you better get down on your knees and you better thank this higher power, whatever this power is, that you've made it. You're still okay. And I remember there was a phone in the bathroom and I thought, I just wish I knew somebody to call. Isn't this great? You know, when you treat speakers or guests in the fellowship that come To me, it meant everything, just the simple kindness, a room, a quiet sleep, some hugs, and prayers for me. And it was overwhelming. And and I realized then that, you know, I wasn't going to make this program and be okay if I didn't have a God, and I had to be willing to step out and at least try this faith thing. And I think it's no accident that most of the people that I met in the program had a God long before I did. They had more faith than I did, and I think God put those people in my path. I continued on with all I knew, which was go to another meeting, do what you're supposed to do. Uh, The place where I worked, uh, we had an Alateen group that met across the street in the hospital. Uh, The sponsor couldn't sponsor that following year, and she said to me, will you be the sponsor for the kids over at Mercy. and Well, I really didn't want to because I worked with some of them, but they needed the meeting, and I thought, you know, somebody's got to do it. And and so I became an Alateen sponsor, and it was a great year. Uh, We're all kind of from the heartland of Iowa and Minnesota. We called ourselves the Blondes. Uh, And then one day a guy who was brunette came. (laughs) So we were the Blondes and Nick, And, and that's who we were. And you know what? None of those 14-year-olds ever broke my anonymity. Never. And we had just such a great relationship. And uh, in 1992, which is beginning to feel like a long time ago, and yet it seems like yesterday, I was invited to Oregon to the Rogue River Roundup. I'd never been to Oregon. It was beautiful. I went out on the river that day. It was the first weekend in May. And I took one of those jet boat rides, and we saw an eagle and a deer, and I felt just at one with the universe, and I thought, you know, it doesn't matter if he drinks or not. I love this person. My life is good. I have the program. All is well. I came home from that weekend. I walked down the hall, and I found that my things, my things from the bedroom, my lamp, my book, had been moved into the back bedroom. I saw the dresser there, and then I looked in and saw the rest of my stuff. I'd been set up back there while I was gone. And that night I just went back there. I didn't say anything. I went to bed. I was tired. And I'd learned that you don't always have to speak up right away. It's usually not the wisest, in fact. So I just let it be. But in the morning I thought to myself, you know, 
what does this God, as I understand him today, what does this God want for me? I don't think he wants me sleeping on the saggy single bed in the back bedroom. So I decided to take step three that day. I made a decision to turn my will and my life really, truly over to the care of God. Before that, I'd turn it over to the program, my group, my sponsor. But I just said, God, I don't know what you want from me, but I don't really think this is it. And that's when the miracles started truly to happen. I made one phone call. Cedar Rapids has a large section of rental properties. I called one number. The voice on the other end said, Judy, is that you? (laughs) God? (laughs) (laughs) It was my friend Dottie from the program. And they had rental properties, and she said, oh, yeah, she said, I, I've got a fourplex. She said, we've got one for six months, and uh, all I heard was that it had orange carpet, and somebody in there smoked, and I, I thought, oh, no, you know. Uh, but my friend said, come on, we'll go look at it. To make it short, about a week later, I borrowed my boss's pickup. I took a Monday morning off. I had several Al-Anon friends, including my sponsor, She took my clothes, another friend took my plants, and uh, I set out for that little apartment. I was set up in there, and I made it to the district meeting that night, about 8.05. I was in my chair, and I began to go on with my new life. It was such a small apartment. When I put my recliner out, my feet were in the fireplace, (laughs) so it was a good thing. It was May, Uh, no fire. And uh, I just began to live there, and I gave myself a divorce for Christmas. That was not my plan. It wasn't. It wasn't what I wanted. I didn't think it was right, but it moved in that direction, and that's what it came down to. And... I lived there, went to meetings, started going to movies, things I had never done for a long, long time. And the following August, my sponsor's mother was dying in the hospital, and she was waiting for a brother to come from Texas so that they could make the decision to take her off life support. And she was very crabby because he was off on a trip, and uh, I thought I better stay there and protect him from her. And uh, so I was still there when he arrived in the morning, and uh, we sat together on the couch, and he said, how do you know my sister? And I thought he knew about his sister, but it turns out I knew his sister better than he did. And uh, the mother died, the funeral happened, I called their house, And uh, Peggy said to me, my sponsor Peggy said, my brother wants to talk to you. And I thought he was going to ask me to come over and babysit the poodle while they went out and did something. I don't know why I would think such a ridiculous thing. I just hated that dog, so I guess that's what I was thinking. (laughs) And he said, would you like to go to dinner? Dinner? Well, I was living by myself. And uh, I thought, well, dinner might be all right. But then I said, I can't. Stella and I are going to a meeting. And, and then there was a silence, and I felt sorry for him. You know, I'm not recovered yet. And uh, so I said, okay, I, I would go. 
And uh, I thought I would be in charge because I had the car and, you know, he was captive and I could dump him <laughs> when the meal was over. Um, but to make a long story short, he was very nice. He was inquisitive about Al-Anon and the 12 steps. Uh, he did order a beer that night, and I remember looking at it to see how quickly it went down or what happened to it, but he never finished it. And he also said to me in the course of that evening, you know, I could learn some things from you. I thought that was really interesting. You know, the alcoholic had never said anything like that to me. But I wasn't very nice to him. His wife had died. He said he wanted to get married again. I said, not me. Uh, I haven't had a very good track record, and I'm pretty happy in my little apartment. And I was kind of rude to him. And so when he went back to Texas, I called Peggy up. I thought I owed him an amends. You know, I didn't really have to be cruel to this guy just because he was a guy. And uh, so I sent him a little note. And I apologized for my behavior, and I thanked him for dinner, and I said it was really a pleasure. And to make a long story short, he's my husband. <laughs> he had asked me if I'd ever think of coming to Texas. I said, no, why would I go there? You know, I was slow to catch on. He lived there. And uh, <laughs> I only tell you that because I want you to know that Al-Anon is not about finding anyone a husband. I was not looking for one. I didn't want one. But it is being open to God's will and working the steps to the best of my ability. And I think he's my husband because I wrote him a note and apologized for my behavior. And he called to thank me for it and said, would you ever think about visiting Houston? And I said, you know, maybe. Because I had learned another slogan, which was, keep an open mind. <laughs> And when he picked me up, he had a nice little red Acura, and he drove just like a bat out of hell. He drove worse than the alcoholic. It was amazing to me. And uh, easy does it. <laughs> um, but we had a great relationship back and forth for over a year, and uh, we've been married. It will be 14 years in October. And somebody, well, Sue said to me, she said, oh, so you've escaped. But you know that's not so. Because he has two sons, and the oldest son and his wife, it appears to me that their major hobby is drinking. And they have a four-year-old granddaughter, and I'm a grandma, and I didn't have to be a mom. Isn't that another miracle? <laughs> You know, not have to. I thought I would be a mother, and I wanted to be a mother, but I could see that alcoholism, that wouldn't really go in the picture, and I, I chose not to be a mother, and so that was a sacrifice. But along comes little Kimberly, and she is blonde and curly-haired, and, oh, man, she's great. But she said to me when I was there in the fall, I went into her room. She has a little coaster on her nightstand, and she said, She's four. She said, you can set your beer there. My mom does. And I said, I have a Coke. Let's read a book. And my husband said to me, you know what, Judy? He said, you need to be her spiritual advisor in this family because I think it's the only one she's going to get right now. 
And so it's all around. And when I go, I practice my principles. I take things to read. We know that when we go there, we buy food because the refrigerator will be empty. Uh, We've learned to do those things because of me, and my husband has learned those things too. Uh, To get by, to still have a good family time, and and just to wait and let it be. Uh, They know I'm in Al-Anon, and uh, they ask about it if it's boring. My husband loves the fellowship. He's probably one of the best supporters of Alcoholics Anonymous. He'll come with me. Uh, He's good to my Al-Anon friends. Uh, And they'll say, isn't that kind of boring to go and listen to people tell their stories? And he will say, oh, on the contrary, it's so inspirational. You won't believe the stories of lives restored, he'll say. And he'll beam, and he's just a supporter. He's not a member of either program. And they just look at him like, whatever. (laughs) We were in Houston four years. My husband said he'd like to go to Nevada. I said, I'll come with you if I can have a new washing machine with a gentle cycle and a cat. (laughs) He said, it's a deal. And so off we went to Nevada. I've been there 10 years, and my life is great. I found a home group right away, one I could find on the map. I got there, the alternate GR. uh, Couldn't remember to go to district meetings. She didn't want the job. I wanted it. I had been in service in Iowa. I said, I'll go. And then when my alternate term was up for two years, GR, I was the group representative. I loved being the group representative, and I met people, district meetings every month. And uh, I thought I could be the best GR in the world because I just followed the directions. I actually read the appeal letter three times in a row. And I stopped saying things like, oh, well, if you want, you can put in some loose change. You know how we say. Uh, The letter says, read it three times. Give everyone the opportunity to contribute to the fellowship. So I just did that. I just followed directions. And my group was the highest contributing group in the whole state to area just because I followed directions. We were so financially self-supporting, and it was cool. I love my home group. It's called Love and Laughter. We tell our Al-Anon stories on the month of our Al-Anon anniversary. Uh, I became the cake baker, and I got a little honorary rolling pin and pie uh, that I wear. And then I went for district representative. And there was a woman there who wanted to be district representative. And when we walked in that night, she said to me, I want this job so bad I can taste it. You know, I don't like confrontation. I don't like competition. But fortunately, the uh, chair that night said, uh, she went all the way around. She asked each person, are you willing to serve? And I'm so grateful she did that because I never would have volunteered. But when she said, are you willing? I said, yes, I am willing. And so I was DR for three years, and that was great. I just finished last weekend my term as area chair. And that has been a blast because I've met people from Las Vegas and Winnemucca, South Lake Tahoe, Bishop. And I have a family in Nevada. And we try to have some fun at assembly and on Friday nights before we start our business meeting. Uh, We have a potluck. And uh, the first time I was there, 
our first assembly, we had what we called recovery and review. Everybody uh, came, we played music, and we dressed up in an outfit that might represent a slogan or our job in uh, Al-Anon. And my mother and husband went to the fabric store, and they got this really ugly material, and they made me a chair outfit. It, it looks like an overstuffed chair, big sleeves, and it has upholstery, uh, I don't know, metal things in it. And, uh, yeah. and then I got a lampshade for my hat. So I looked like a chair, and then I put the service manual in my arm, and uh, right before I was ready to get my outfit on, uh, I looked over, and I brought it in a garbage sack, which was a mistake, and uh, <laughs> potluck was over. People saw the trash sack. <laughs> so they've been throwing coffee cups and spaghetti plates and everything. I mean, they invest a lot of time in my outfit. So I just threw off the plates and the cups, and I put on my wet cape and put on my lampshade that already had a stain in it, and I wore it down our little aisle, recovery of review. And you know what? I just laughed to myself because I don't care today that I look stupid. I'm willing to do something and have fun doing it. And... What great relief. And last weekend, I dug out my cape, my old stained lampshade, the beads are coming off, and I passed it on to my friend Lisa. And uh, she sent me an email, and she said, I'm wearing the cape, but where's the plunger? (laughs) And the plunger is because my first meeting, our past delegate comes up to me and says, the toilet's plugged. I thought, why is she telling me that? Well, I guess that was part of my job as area chair. Now, that's very humbling, don't you think? Go unplug the toilet. I thought I would be up there leading the meeting, but uh, that was part of the deal. you got to go get Jim and unplug the toilet. They don't work so well in uh, Tonopah, Nevada. We are out in the middle of nowhere between Reno and Las Vegas. We're parked out in the dirt. It's an old, old mining town. It's dismal. And it's the greatest place in the world. Everybody loves to go to Tonopah. And we have a great, great time there uh, in service to the fellowship. You know, I knew when I walked into Al-Anon that I was powerless. And over time, the steps have helped me to know and understand myself. The traditions have helped me be aware and learn how to work with others. And then the concepts have helped me practice what I know to be true. And I think that's what I come here to celebrate tonight, because Elanon to me represents everything that is good, that is principled, that is truthful. It's the best. It's the best of everything. And when I came to Elanon, I had no principles. I compromised my own standards. I lied. I manipulated, I spied. I was willing to sacrifice what I believed to the disease of alcoholism, and Linda mentioned that last night, to please the disease. I gave myself away. Here I've gotten myself back. And I think today a spiritual life to me is a life of principle. It's not compromised, and it's out of denial and into reality. And my old ideas and stereotypes and prejudices, they don't serve me today. They don't serve me at all.
And I think when I reflect on the alcoholic in my life, I pray for him. I am sad about alcoholism that destroys families. And people might say, well, why are you here? Well, you know, I'm here because I got myself in this position. And if Al-Anon is truly for members whose lives have been affected by alcoholism, mine has been. And that new book, Opening Our Hearts, Transforming Our Losses, I got that right away. It's me in that book. But you have taught me to learn to love again and trust again and try again. And although I don't have a spouse in the other program, I belong here and I love many members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Christmas Eve night, this last time, I'm in the middle of my happy new life. Underneath the Sierra Nevada's little Kimberly is there. I'm putting out cheese and I'm having just a blissful time thinking of everybody home for Christmas. And the phone rang. My husband answered it and he said, it's for you. Is there trouble? And I said, hello? It was the alcoholic calling to wish me happy holidays. To say that he still loved me. I hadn't had that in years before I left. But I always thought it was true. Because alcoholism is not about love. It's about an illness. And I know that. And I've forgiven anything that happened between us. I have compassion and love for him. Still, I do. I have a new life, but I still care for his well-being. And I thanked him for his thoughtfulness. And it was happy hour in Iowa, I could tell. (laughs) And I hung up and just went back to putting the cheese on the plate. You know, I, I moved forward, but... I am very grateful. My Al-Anon journey has helped me, I think, put my life in the context of God's story. And I have no regrets for what's happened. I feel blessed today to be a part of you, to have you accept me still. I feel like I'm still in recovery. Al-Anon wards off sadness. I think, for me, I've learned to love and laugh again. And I am blessed that this program is about second chances and perfect timing because it's been that way for me. So thank you, and I'll look forward to Diane tomorrow and uh, seeing you dance tonight. Thanks so much.